This is the Rounds Table. Hi, Rounds Table listeners. We would like to take a minute to ask for your help. We're doing a study to try to understand why people listen to medical podcasts. We would love to interview you. This would take no more than about 20 to 30 minutes of your time, which would be compensated with an Amazon gift card. How about that? We've already interviewed quite a few people, and we just need to do a few more interviews to complete the study. We are especially looking for people who live outside of Toronto or people who practice in non-academic settings. If you are interested, please contact us via email or Twitter. I can be reached at K-I-E-R-A-N-Q-U-I-N-N at gmail.com or our good old host Amol Verma, A-M-O-L dot A dot Verma, V-E-R-M-A at gmail.com or You can tweet at us at Rounds Table, and we'll get in contact with you. We would really appreciate it, and thanks so much for your help. We have Ariel Lefkowitz back with us today. Dr. Lefkowitz, thank you for coming to the show, and welcome back. Uh, Thanks very much, and please call me Ariel. The article I chose uh, was from a recent issue of JAMA Internal Medicine concerning goals of care in advanced dementia. Specifically, these authors have piloted a new intervention to help clinicians have effective goals of care discussions with their patients and their families. Yeah, I could see that this was Susan Mitchell's work out of Boston, and she is certainly leading the way when it comes to care for the patient with advanced dementia. Uh, Tell us, Ariel, what is the bottom line for this article? The bottom line is that a goals of care decision aid like this one is effective in improving end-of-life communication between nursing home residents, their families, and the healthcare teams caring for them. Let's unpack that a little bit further. There's certainly a push in Ontario and across Canada for advanced care planning. But Ariel, why did you personally choose this article? I think the goals of care discussions are absolutely critical in caring for patients the way that they want to be cared for. And I know that you feel strongly about this too, Kieran, with your interest in palliative care. But more than that, I actually had the honor of having an article published recently in the Canadian Journal of Kidney Health and Disease about evaluating whether clinicians caring for patients on dialysis actually know what their goals of care are. You know, we compared uh, whether the clinicians could surmise what the goals of care would be that the patients themselves would identify. And this article does a similar thing as I'll discuss further, but I think both articles are geared towards seeing how well we're doing currently in having goals of care discussions with our patients and how we can improve those. Yeah, and and for our listeners, it's a great read on uh, Ariel's most recent article. It's published in the Canadian Journal of Kidney Health and Disease. We'll put the, the link for the article up for those interested to read further. So let's get into this article a bit more here. Ariel, tell us what was the design of the study and where did it take place? So this was a single blind cluster randomized clinical trial and it took place using nursing homes in the 60 minute driving radius of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And the model that they used was a cluster randomized trial in as much as every patient within a certain nursing home would be randomized to the same group but nursing homes themselves were the units that were randomized. Right, instead of patients. And you'll see that the intervention is such that blinding of the clinicians and patients and their families within a nursing home wouldn't be possible, but they blinded the researchers who were analyzing the data 
to prevent them from applying biases to them in that way. So within these dyads as a nursing home, who were the patients that they included in the study itself? The brief inclusion criteria were patients admitted to these nursing homes who were 65 years or older and had severe or advanced dementia, which meant they had to at least require care, couldn't live independently, for example, and that ranged up to very, very severe dementia, limiting any sort of communication and things like that. And the last criterion was that they had to have an English-speaking family member. What was the principal question or goal of this study? What was the intervention that they performed? So the intervention that they applied was a a goals of care video decision aid. So they prepared an 18-minute goals of care video decision aid, and they also distributed a print copy of this decision aid called Questions to Consider in Care Planning. They also provided staff with a short one-hour training session that allowed the nurses and social workers and staff to feel more comfortable having these discussions. So a lot of sort of educational uh, components to this robust intervention with a practical component to it as well. What were the primary outcomes? How are they going to measure the effect of this intervention? So the primary outcomes were using survey data that they collected from the family decision makers. They applied a questionnaire to evaluate quality of communication as well as a subset of that survey called end-of-life communication. They did goals of care concordance, similar to my trial that I briefly described, but instead of asking the healthcare team themselves, they asked the family members how well they believed the healthcare team was adhering to their goals of care. And finally, they used uh, an advanced care planning problem score that the team of researchers actually also piloted themselves. I always think that trials that involve patients with fairly advanced dementia are fascinating too, because While that person is the patient, the intervention is really geared towards the caregivers and the the loved ones of the patient because ultimately they're the ones who have to make these decisions. So it's always a neat uh, design. It's just a reflective thought piece there for you, Ariel. I mean, absolutely. You know, patients who have dementia are dependent for their care. They're also dependent for their decision making. And so we can do a lot of good in affecting how the people around them make decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think this is taking place at an appropriate point in an individual's life in that it's upstream of presentation to hospital or having these discussions in hospital. Mm -hmm. Let's get into the findings of the study. What boiled out at the end here, Ariel? They were able to randomize 302 residents within nursing homes, as well as, of course, the dyad of their family members who were making decisions for them. Using that population, they did find that within the intervention group, so that group that got this video aid with a little bit of training to the staff who were caring for them, they had an improvement in the quality of communication on their survey by 0.4 or 5.6 to 6, and in the end-of-life communication as well from 3 to 3.7. Now, the goal concordance whether or not they felt that their healthcare team knew what their goals of care were didn't differ at three months, but they found that they were improved at nine months. So the secondary outcomes are far more fascinating to me than the primary outcomes using this survey data. Okay, so what were those secondary outcomes and what did they find? So the secondary outcomes looked at things like how many of the residents actually filled out advanced care planning directives, for example. How many of them were transferred to hospital versus were not transferred to hospital? And also looked at mortality of those patients. 
Right. Maybe more important from the healthcare system and administrator's point of view. Although I think there is a very important practical and clinical aspect to the patient as an individual themselves as far as transfer to hospital. Absolutely. You know, as a caveat, I think in designing a trial, you want to choose something that you believe will have a, a significant change. Uh, and then the secondary outcomes tend to be hypothesis generating. And it just so happens that in this particular trial, the secondary outcomes did have significance and are really fascinating. In the intervention group, they had half as many hospital transfers as the control group. And that probably stems from the fact that in the intervention group, they completed more of these advanced care planning directives. And the survival at nine months was unaffected, so no change in mortality. And it probably speaks to how sick somebody is when they end up do needing transfer to hospital. Now, I just want to take one minute to go back to the primary outcome findings. The differences that they reported in these tools that they use to measure quality of communication or concordance, are these an important difference that we see? I mean, the p-value is, you know, less than 0.05. What, what kind of clinical effect does that have? Yeah, so again, I think this is a, a limitation because of how they chose these primary outcomes. So they did find, as you said, a statistical significance, but it's really hard to say whether this represents a clinical significance. So to their credit, these are patient-centered outcomes. It matters to a patient how well they feel the quality of communication at end of life is. But it's not clear whether an increase of 0.7 on this scale is going to actually change how somebody feels at the end of life. Whereas, I know this is something that you've discussed previously on this podcast, where somebody dies, now that can really affect you know how they feel about the end of life of a loved one. And curiously, I'll actually make a note that in the discussion section of this article, the authors noted that the quality of communication in an ICU setting for patients who do end up dying in the ICU is better than that observed in the nursing home setting. Okay, all right. Now I have something else interesting to say. The curious thing about the nursing home environment is that it's actually the nurses and social workers that tend to have these critical conversations, not the nurse practitioners and not the physicians. They hypothesize that with an increased amount of training in this area to physicians, perhaps this is why there's improved communication in an ICU. Of course, ICU, the I is for intensive, so everything is intensive, including these conversations. But I think the really interesting thing about this article and what it looks at is that this is a non-physician-centered setting. And can we improve the communication in that setting? The answer seems to be yes. And of course, there's even more work to be done in this area. Yeah. Any other uh, things you wanted to point out or thoughts you had about uh, the study overall? In terms of where this particular article falls in the importance, you know, what, how I'm going to take away something from my practice is, you know, I don't personally have access to the intervention that they applied, the video aid. I think that the authors do offer to send those who request it what sounds like a really important and useful decision aid, this guide called Questions to Consider in Care Planning. But in terms of being able to reproduce this sort of intervention for clinicians in a nursing home, I'm not sure how easily somebody would be able to do that. You'd actually have to construct a team that was able to, for example, give the one-hour training session to nurses and their colleagues. And so that's why I believe that the main use of this is in hypothesis generation from the secondary outcomes. We've demonstrated that we can decrease hospital transfers and improve the number of patients who have advanced care planning using 
some intervention like this that improves goals of care conversations, or maybe even just brings to light how important they are. It sounds like you're saying that this is effectively a feasibility study with some important conclusions that can be drawn beyond just the fact that it's a feasible intervention. There's a signal there, but we need to study them further. Each group will have to find out how they're going to deliver an intervention to improve goals of care. They're going to need help from groups who have done a good job on it, but ultimately each group is going to have to forge their own path through the wilderness, I think. Well, thanks, Ariel. Just just give us a quick summary thought. What do you think the main learning point you'd like listeners to take away from? I'd like them to know that encouraging patients to have goals of care discussions and using decision aids can be effective in improving the number of patients who have advanced care planning and can even reduce transfers to hospital in patients who are in nursing homes with advanced dementia. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, um, being in a general internist who sees a lot of these patients in consultation in the emergency room, how durable this improvement in advanced care planning is as far as carrying out those advanced care plans if they are transferred to hospital. But I was reassured to see that less were transferred to hospital as a result. Hopefully this continues to uh, percolate across North America in nursing homes as well. Well, this is a perfect segue into the article that I chose for the week, which looks at treatment of delirium in a palliative care setting, which might apply to some of these patients that were included in your trial. So this was also in JAMA Internal Medicine. They seem to be on fire these days. Um, And it was actually just published very recently in January 2017. And really what we're looking at is the effect of different antipsychotics at controlling symptoms of delirium in patients for palliative care. I'm interested to know what those results are because we know that in patients with delirium who become agitated, we're always grabbing for an antipsychotic potentially if pharmacological management is indicated, but whether or not I know which one to use, which one's going to be more effective, no way. Well, hopefully by the end of this, you'll be saying something totally different than which one to use. This is a randomized clinical trial, 247 patients who are receiving palliative care. They're treated with antipsychotics versus placebo for distressing symptoms of delirium. But the bottom line for this article, Aria, which was surprising to me, antipsychotic drugs were not useful to reduce symptoms of delirium. And in fact, in some instances, such as haloperidol, were associated with shorter survival. So very surprising stuff. The latter point that it increases mortality, that has shown up in previous trials. But, you know, we always believed that they did reduce the, the symptoms of agitation in delirium. And so that is a surprising finding. Yeah. And that's effectively why I chose this article, really. I mean, it really did surprise me um, and will be a practice-changing article in my sense. And to just sort of frame that in a larger context of the literature, about 40% of patients on the admission to a palliative care unit are delirious at the time of admission. And certainly higher rates of delirium are seen at closer to the end of life. As you and I practice, a lot of physicians practice, you know, antipsychotics are one of the go-to tools that we use to try to treat distressing symptoms of delirium. But in the palliative care setting itself, we haven't really established its efficacy in a proper placebo-controlled trial. And you know what? It's actually the use of these medications in this setting currently is off-label. And internationally, there is no approved medication for the symptomatic treatment of delirium for these patients. Tell me, uh, who were these patients? What sort of population are we looking at? So I'll take you through the design of the trial. It's a double-blinded, randomized clinical trial. 
Um, and it was conducted at 11 Australian inpatient uh, hospices or hospital palliative care centers uh, between 2008 and 2014. Mm-hmm. It's an inpatient palliative care unit, so any patients who are admitted to an inpatient palliative care setting, obviously they ha- they're going to have life-limiting illness, they have delirium, and then they have associated distressing symptoms of delirium. In this case, delirium was diagnosed using the DSM-4 criteria for delirium, which is inattention, acute onset, fluctuating course, change in level of consciousness. Um, and then they use some research tools, the Memorial Delirium Assessment Scale and the Nursing Delirium Screening Scale, to formally quantify the symptoms of delirium. And then I think one important point to point out is that these patients actually had to be able to swallow liquids. That's how the um, medications were administered, which isn't always so applicable to every single patient in a palliative care setting that I see. That's right. You know, not only are some patients not able to take medications orally, but sometimes an agitated or delirious patient won't be amenable to taking a medication orally. Absolutely true. Yeah. So keep that in mind as a generalizability uh, point. Just to round out the uh, patient population, so key exclusion criteria, if you were delirious because you had a substance withdrawal, either a prescribed medication or a recreational drug, you were excluded. If you had neuroleptic malignant syndrome on your history, antipsychotics obviously being associated with NMS. If your QT was prolonged, that's a danger for using these drugs for drug-induced VT. And if you had a stroke or a seizure in the prior 30 days, Again, these are all neurological settings that they're trying to avoid in this uh, particular setting. What was the intervention that they applied? How did they do it? The primary study question is, what are the benefits of risperidone or haloperidol, the two antipsychotics they used in this study, in reducing the distressing symptoms of delirium in patients receiving palliative care? So how they administered these medications, they gave a half a milligram of a loading dose with a first dose of half a milligram, and then half a milligram maintenance doses every 12 hours, or they dose-reduced that if the patient was over 65. And that was in a clear, colorless, scentless liquid bottle to maintain blinding. They did that for 72 hours and assessed their symptoms of delirium. You know, you could titrate the doses of these medications up to a maximum of 4 milligrams per day, depending on their ongoing symptoms of delirium and distress overall. So sometimes they were titrating up placebos then. True, yep. All patients in this study are receiving supportive care. They're looking for other precipitants of delirium and trying to treat or reverse those. And then if the patients were really, really distressed and either placebo or the haldol or risperidone wasn't working, then they used midazolam as a sort of a rescue medication for safety or severe distress. Kieran, one thing that I'm really interested in is how did they evaluate the patient's symptoms? How did they decide whether or not the patient was having relief from their agitation or not. Yeah, so these Memorial Delirium Assessment Scale and Nursing Delirium Screening Scale, it is sort of like a subjective assessment of that. One of the components of that nursing scale is inappropriate behavior, inappropriate communication, hallucinations. So a lot of it is a subjective impression. But I think that's appropriate is, you know, it's the same thing that we would do making treatment decisions for patients who are agitated with delirium, we would sort of look at them, talk to their family and say, are they in distress? Do they seem upset? Yeah. Yeah. And then make decisions about administering medications based on that. 
So the primary outcomes, what they really wanted to do to evaluate the efficacy of these interventions was to look at the mean group difference in those delirium symptom scores, the baseline, and then after 72 hours of treatment. Secondary outcomes uh, in the severity of the delirium, the need for midazolam use as the rescue therapy, and then some of the side effects of the medications, including extrapyramidal effects and sedation, as well as survival. So walk us through some of those results, Karen. They screened 1,800 patients, 750 of which were removed for, quotes other reasons, which they don't unpack as to what that means, and it took six years to complete the study. I think overall there's some concerns around selection bias. Regardless, 247 participants in the end were included in this intention-to-treat analysis. 82 received risperidone, 81 received halodol, and 84 received placebo. The risperidone arm had delirium symptom scores that were significantly higher than those among participants in the placebo arm. And that was about a 0.5 unit on that scale of 0 to 6 as far as the delirium symptom score. And similarly, if you were in the haloperidol arm, on average your symptoms were about 0.25 units higher than placebo. So either antipsychotic was associated with more distressing symptoms than placebo. Was that statistically significant, that increase? No, that was not statistically significant. A trend towards worse. But I think more importantly, the interpretation would say actually the same or no different. Right. And again, if you're thinking about the context of trying to treat somebody and give them medications and the medications aren't making any difference and they're associated with side effects, don't do it. The delirium severity overall, not just the symptoms themselves, the severity of the delirium appeared to be worse in the treatment groups and more extrapyramidal effects were observed in the treatment groups. That obviously would be expected as those are known side effects of some of these antipsychotics. No kidding. Finally, if you looked at survival, there was, on average, patients survived about 26 days in the placebo group and only about 16 days in the antipsychotic group. So you're 1.5 times more likely to die in a shorter period of time if you're treated with these antipsychotics. And you did see a significant difference in survival time for the Haldol arm specifically. Now, that's despite after 72 hours the medication having been discontinued? That is correct. They follow these patients after 72 hours and they're no longer in the groups. Those ones who were randomized first died shorter. And were they dying immediately or at or 26 days? Or was it an effect that seemed to linger and then cause earlier death? Do you have any sense of that? It sort of spreads out over time. So it's not all or none at 26 days. It's just if you looked on average the time to death, the differences was about 10 days between the groups. That strikes me as significant, <laughs> certainly clinically significant. It is, it is. It's an important thing to, to show in this study for sure with these medications, which as you already mentioned, we know can be very dangerous medications. Do you see any limitations with these results? Do you believe them? Well, there's a couple of things I wanted to point out. So as far as what the differences in those scores that they used, there's no universally agreed upon minimally important clinical differences between measuring improvement. So how they did it in this trial was to get a bunch of experts together to sit down and say, we think that one unit on the nursing delirium symptom score was important. So if you remember that the differences were only about 0.5 and 0.25. Right. They weren't worse, and by the expert consensus, they were just not different. That would be one thing to point out. We talked about the generalizability earlier, especially with the, the fact that patients had to swallow. 
So I think that that limits who this trial can be really applied to, but I think there's important messages in it. And uh, I mentioned already the, the selection bias concerns. But I think despite all of those limitations and critiques of the study, I think these results are believable. And I think that this should be considered to be a practice-changing trial. You took the words right out of my mouth. I'm so, so curious to hear how this is going to change your practice. The typical person in this study, and I think this is a person I see quite often, a 75-year-old gentleman who comes in with advanced cancer, who actually was otherwise cognitively well at baseline, is receiving you know opioid medications for his pain, and he comes in with mild to moderate severity delirium. In that situation, I would reassure the family we're going to look after the patient, and I would order an appropriate end-of-life care set that would include atypical or typical antipsychotics uh, on the order set for relief of distressing symptoms. And I think after reading this study, I am going to be very, very hesitant to use those medications in the setting of trying to control symptoms of delirium because of the inefficacy that we see in this trial and the association with shorter survival time. How are you going to make that decision going forward? Well, I think there's a couple of caveats to it. One, don't forget that Haldol is a very effective anti-nauseant, um, especially in the setting of cancer. Like it's sister prochlorperazine. Mm-hmm, exactly, right? So, you know, there are uses for these medications, but perhaps the delirium symptoms is not the appropriate use in that setting itself. Yeah, a very reasonable conclusion. Yeah, and I think, you know, as all uh, clinicians attempt to do is really sit down and ask yourself the question, why is this person agitated right now? Is it pain? Is it dyspnea? Is it a catheter that's in place? Is it something else? And try your alternative medications first before you move to potentially a benzodiazepine for agitation. Said like a true compassionate palliative care physician, Kieran. Thanks, Ariel. You know, we talked about a lot of stuff in this trial. I want to just summarize the main learning points for our listeners. You know, everybody is, who deals with end-of-life care recognizes that delirium is common. It's distressing for patients. It's distressing for families. It's distressing for physicians and healthcare teams. But in this trial that I think can be applied in some way to the broader context, antipsychotics not only appear to be ineffective, They are associated with shorter survival time and potentially some harm as far as the extra pyramidal side effects. So I think that we should really be focusing on discouraging their use in this population of patients. And I will certainly think twice before I prescribe them moving forward. Thank you very much for highlighting that article. Well, Ariel, let's move on to my favorite segment of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. What is catching your eye this week? I like food and uh, I'm hungry. So I think that good stuff is edible. On Thursday, January 5th, the uh, uh, National Institute of Health in the United States released uh, an expert panel clinical guidelines update regarding peanut allergies. This was widely reported on because uh, I think that this is an age-old debate that's gone back and forth on whether or not to give young children and babies peanut-based foods or foods with peanuts in them for fear that they should have a life-threatening allergy. Now, finally, uh, we in the Western world have caught up to what, for example, Israel has known for ages now. The rates of peanut allergies in Israel have always been incredibly low, and they chalk it up to this one 
delicious snack called bamba, which kids love and contains peanuts. Now, finally, we're going to have to find something that's going to be equivalent here uh, in Canada and in the United States because the new recommendations say that giving babies as young as six months peanut-containing foods can actually decrease the rate of anaphylaxis and allergies to peanuts in these children. So I should buy stock in Bamba. Is that what you're telling me? Bamba is going to explode across this earth, I'm telling you. And I'm going to get my hands on some for my infant at home as well. Sounds delicious. I think so. That's great, Ariel. Thank you. So I focused uh, on an area of personal research interest which looks at how to care for the increasing comorbidity and complexity that we see in our elderly patients. And it was a trial that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine. It seems to be my favorite reading piece these days. But uh, it looked at these very high-intensity outpatient care models to try to reduce costs, to try to reduce uh, healthcare utilization in patients who were in the uh, Veterans Affairs uh, program in the United States. And unfortunately, it found that it did not reduce acute care utilization or costs compared to the sort of standard outpatient VA care that these people were receiving. Like our experience in Toronto with the virtual ward trial that was tried uh, several years back with sort of a similar context to it, we just haven't figured out how to care for people who have intense medical needs outside of the hospital, um, which, you know, presents an opportunity for me as my future research to try to figure that out. But certainly there's a lot of very bright minds trying to work on this and we haven't been able to figure it out yet. So you read this and you said, challenge accepted. Challenge accepted as I was eating my Bamba bar, it was delicious. Well, you know, at the very least, we can get rich off Bamba stock and call it a day. Brilliant. I love it. Well, thanks, Ariel. It was a pleasure as always. We look forward to having you back in the future. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very delighted to be on and, and looking forward to our next visit. Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.